Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I want to thank all of my listeners who joined me from around the world and have been supporting our podcasts. Uh, we're in excess of 565 author interviews to date. Everybody out there is great. Your responses, your questions, um, and interaction with our authors. And today, joining me from Toronto, uh, Canada, is an author that I learned about through a consultant up in uh, San Clemente, California. It's John, I want to make sure I'm spelling, uh, pe- pronouncing your last name right. Is it Warlolo? Warlolo, that's Warlo. correct. Warlolo, okay. And he has written mi- three books, actually, but the ones we're going to be focusing on today is one called Built to Sell, which is the inked best book for business owners, creating a business that you can thrive without you, creating a business that can thrive without you. He's also the author of a book called The Automatic Customer, Creating a Subscription Business in Any Industry. And he's the founder of the sellabilityscore.com. You can reach him there. You can also reach him at builttosell.com. Uh, so, John, let's kind of get into this. I am going to give my listeners just a little bit of background about you. Um, he has written those books, plus another one called Drilling for Good. He's a regular contributor to Inc.com and The Globe and Mail. Uh, he's called one of the top 10 business-to-business marketers by B2B Marketing. Assessing businesses for over 15 years, he shares his expertise in areas ranging from entrepreneurship, sellability, and the benefits of subscription-based marketing to build and sustain success. And um, he is definitely a man on the move, so we're lucky to have captured him, and let's get some questions to him uh, about this great book that he's written, or books, I should say. Now, John, you you use kind of a parable in this. You start off the book with a story about this advertising agency and the owner, Alex, who's struggling with the business and he lost of the key employee and then the financial concentration into this one account called MNY Bank. And actually, finally, Alex gets just totally frustrated and he decides to sell his business and seek the counsel of his good friend and advisor, Ted. And Ted provides Alex with some important advice and lessons, which makes the concentration really of the rest of your book. And I think the most important part of the book, to be honest with you. But I love the way that you use that parable and story to tell it. Now, Ted got Alex to focus on just doing logo designs instead of everything else in his advertising agency. What is the magic in somebody specializing because you are basically saying hey look package what you do um and what happened was is that um ted got alex to focus in on that why do you believe that that's so important whether we're doing internet business or we're doing business out in the rest of the world you know primarily it's because employees have trouble keeping up with us as entrepreneurs so you know, as an entrepreneur listening to this, my guess is that you are the subject matter expert 
in your industry. So whether you fix cars or you sell flowers or you're a massage therapist or you engineer buildings, my guess is that you are the guru, the, the subject matter expert on that topic, which means that you're probably pretty comfortable you know, talking about all different aspects of whatever it is that you sell. The problem is when it comes to the employees that you hire, it's very difficult to train them and, and, and educate them to the same extent you are educated on the on industry matters uh, very quickly. And so as a result, you severely limit the size of your company because uh, as long as you're selling lots of different things within in an industry, it's very hard to train employees. And so you, you end up becoming the, the primary salesperson for your company. And then every, you know, everybody knows that as soon as you are the main salesperson, you know, you can't scale beyond the hours of the day. So uh, that's why once you figure out one thing you can do better than anything, anything else, that you can start to train employees to deliver that. And then, then you can get some scale built into your company. Mm-hmm. And without that, it's very difficult because you're basically wearing a lot of hats and you can't focus and concentrate. Is that what you're telling most of my listeners? It's a pretty tough thing to get that scalability without that. Yeah. You know, I, I just had a, a meeting with an individual in my office about an hour ago who said, um, you know, for me, I'm a, I'm, I'm sort of a craftsperson in what I do. I, you know, uh, in, in his case, he rendered a professional service. So he was in, in a kind of consulting space. And so he thought of himself as, a, as very much a craftsperson and was most mindful that he was no, never going to sell his company. There was no, no scale to his business, but he was, uh, and he was reflecting on that a little bit. And I think that's a good thing for for your listeners to think about. And that is, you know, what, you know, it's one thing to hold your shingle out and say, I'm a business owner, but there is a big difference between someone who sells their time or expertise and then somebody who who builds a a valuable sellable company. Mm -hmm. And I think, Knowing which you are and being happy with that is really important. Where where I see problems is where somebody thinks they are, uh, you know, have a business that will be worth something to somebody one day, when in actual fact, all they really have is a glorified job. And so that's where I see the big disconnect. It's okay to, to be a solopreneur and have uh, a, a wonderful lifestyle business, uh, and that's a, that can be a tremendous way to to have a career, uh, but just don't confuse that with building and scaling a company that one someone would want to sell. Uh, excuse me, someone would want to buy because right. there's a huge difference. Well, it definitely, and I and isn't one of the big things really, John, about creating recurring revenue in your business. I mean, when you think about it, if you're a consultant or a solopreneur and you don't have a product like this gentleman who was in your office, um, if, you, if you're if you always doing customized one-off stuff and you are the IP for your company, it's very difficult to scale that. Yeah, I agree. Although I do, I, I would suggest that those two things are different. Um, so, so yes, once you've identified what it is that uh, you could do better than anybody else, putting that on some sort of recurring annuity-based Billing platform, billing model, is is going to help. So, for example, if if you're in the business of uh, if you've got a swimming pool, you're in San Diego, so you should get this. You're in a swimming pool installation business, uh, and you've got a crew of guys and gals who go out and install swimming pools. Well, it's a one and done business. You ever you never only need one swimming pool, hopefully in your home, and so you know. That business may hire lots of employees. It may, you know, the owner may think they are building a successful, you know, big business with 10, 20, 50, 100 employees. Um, but 
very few people would want to buy it unless they could demonstrate some recurring nature to the revenue. Mm -hmm. And so that swimming pool manufacturer would be much better off saying, okay, in addition to installing swimming pools, we're also going to maintain them. And we're going to, we're going to send a crew every two weeks with a little kit that's going to test the chlorine levels in the water. And we're going to charge a very small amount of money to thousands of customers who have us monitor the chlorine levels in their pool every two weeks. Mm -hmm. And we can train students in high school how to do the chlorine testing. Now, that latter business with thousands of recurring customers, that's a business lots of people would want to buy. Not only other swimming pool installation companies, but also other lawn maintenance companies, garden maintenance, construction companies. There are lots of people that would like to buy thousands of customers that 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 buy on a regular recurring basis. So yeah, it's the combination of picking one thing, but also uh, setting that up on a recurring basis. Yeah, it's it's uh, kind of like the situation with uh, landscape construction and landscape maintenance. You know, once you do the job, you're done. But once you keep the guys coming back to the job over and over, those landscape maintenance jobs could be a lot. Just using that in exa- as an example. Now, one of the things that Ted tells Alex in your book in this uh, parable is he's relying heavy, heavily on this uh, one client for uh, for revenue, and you say that. No one should rely on more than 15% of their income from any one client. Why do you believe this is so important um, to the business owners listening, and especially those who want to scale and sell? Well, if you look at your business through the eyes of an acquirer, um, what you'll see is when one customer generates too much revenue, it's a risk, right? So if you're looking at buying, uh, for example, that swimming pool installation business, and you see that one very wealthy customer has created such a large swimming pool that it represents 40% of that company's revenue last year, um, a choir looking at that will say, well, that's at risk. If that customer goes away or chooses another swimming pool me- vendor, um, that revenue is going to go away. And it, and it comes back to the the lens through which I think you're looking at your business. Remember that for a lot of business owners, uh, you know, the the sporting analogy most owners tell me running a business represents for them is a marathon. They say, you know, running a company, if it were were a sport, it would be like running a marathon. And as much as you feel like you're running a marathon and that selling your business one day is the finish line, remember that your finish line is an acquirer's starting line. And they're coming to that starting line with all the enthusiasm and energy of someone who's just starting a race. And so they want to know what's the future of this business. And if they see that the majority of your revenue is coming from one or two customers, they're going to be very hesitant knowing that there's you know, not much uh, future of this business if so much of your revenue is coming from just a couple customers. Interesting. Now, obviously, your whole thing is about helping business owners with their sellability score, um, the value builders, the things you've built, the programs you've built to help other consultants out there actually build a business which I would presume would be quite sellable, is Alex, or Ted tells Alex not to become synonymous with his company. That if buyers aren't confident that your business can run without you in charge, they won't make the best offer. What advice do you have to the people that are out there listening for business owners about getting out of this solopreneur mentality 
how would you guide somebody who's saying, hey, John, you know, I'm just having a challenge with this. Um, what would be some of your steps that you might talk about in doing that? Well, first of all, productize your service. And so most service providers think of themselves as a generic member of a service industry. So they'll say, I'm a copywriter, I'm an architect, I'm a, a designer, fill in the blank service provider. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you bucket yourself in that service bucket, uh, you are now competing with everybody else that, that offers the same set of services. Someone will say, well, you know, legal services, uh, commercial legal services should be no less than 200, no more than $200 an hour. Or I've got a friend who pays their architect $75 an hour. How dare you charge me $100 an hour for your time? All of a sudden you are competing against every other Tom, Dick and Harry who offers the same service. What I would counsel you to do is think about productizing your service. And what I mean by that is to name the product that the service that you provide, like you would be naming a company or a product. Uh, so, you know, have in, in Alex's case, he has the five-step logo design process. Mm -hmm. um, a dear friend of mine who's, who's passed away had the, um, had the divorce mediation uh, kit. He was a lawyer who was uh, trying to differentiate his legal services from others, and he developed the divorce uh, mediation uh, handbook, I think is what he called it, which, uh, as the name states, he, he worked on the divorces. And so he productized it. And I think that's the first step that you want to take uh, to getting yourself out of competing with everybody else. Because as much as there are hundreds of architects in your local community, there's probably only one of you well, there only is one of you by definition that offers whatever product you want to name it. So it, again, if it's the seven step system for building an eco-friendly building, as an example, name it, trademark the name, uh, you know, protect the name, et cetera. So question for you, because obviously you didn't start at this stage either, and you have certainly productized your own business into the value builders program and the sellability score. Um, what basically led you, John, up to the point where you said, heck, you know, I've been helping businesses long enough try and do this. I need to find a way to duplicate myself. And how'd you get that going? Well, I, I've had a few businesses actually, Greg. And, and so this business started off um, very much, uh, we never made the transition. We always started as value builder and we licensed the technology to, to, uh, to group of value builder advisors. My last company may be a better example where we were a market research business. And as a market research business, we competed for jobs typically by responding to requests for proposal from large enterprise organizations. And, and we were just generic market research providers. So we did quantitative market research, we did focus groups, uh, we did in-depth interviews, all these things that lots of other competitors did. And we ended up, you know, basically selling on price. We were re responding to RFPs and, and, and the more RFPs we responded to, the lower our margins became uh, because the more people that were competing with the same for the same job. And so what we, what we decided to do was get out of the business of generic market research and into something called the Warlow Subscriber Network, which was a name that we gave to the kind of research that we did. Uh, so we named it, uh, we had uh, a whole methodology behind it, but it, it got us out of just generically competing with everybody else in our industry. And that, uh, that became a successful company. Interesting. So 
Ted basically is giving more advice to Alex as he goes through the book. And it it's this thing, you call it the cash suck. So once you've standardized your service, charge up from and, and use what you call progress billing to create a positive cash flow cycle. I think for a lot of the entrepreneurs out there listening, uh, cash flow is an issue. And you, you talked heavily about charging up front. And you mentioned that people are used to paying for products up front. How do you recommend to the listeners who are out there who are now not doing that? I have lots of customers because I counsel businesses on making their businesses sellable. I mean, these podcasts are great, but they haven't been monetized. So what I do is I actually do something very similar. So how do you tell these people to get out of this a, um, accounts receivable aging issue so they can get their cash in hand? Because that is a big issue for a lot of businesses. Well, again, it, it comes down to something you shared earlier, Greg, which is we are socialized to buy products up front and pay for services over time. And so right. I, I'd ask you to think about the last time you bought an eight-roll pack of toilet paper. Uh, did you use it first and then pay for it, or did you pay for it and then use it? My guess is the latter. <laughs> you, you probably bought it because it's a thing. Just like when you go, you know, you go into Apple Store and buy your MacBook Air, you're buying a thing and you expect to pay for it before you get to start using it. Whereas with services, again, if you think about the services, especially in a business-to-business context, my guess is that the guy or gal who does your ta- your, your your account. Uh, they'll send you their, you know, they'll do all your tax return. It's tax season right now in, in America. They'll do your tax return. They'll put staff analysts on your file. They'll just amalgamate all your receipts. And then after maybe 30 days, they'll send you an invoice. And then after 60 days, they'll call you and say, hey, can you pay, you pay for that invoice? The same is true of virtually all service providers, legal services. I'm, I'm working on a project right now with a lawyer and we've probably been working for three or four months and he hasn't sent me a bill yet. He might be another three months before he sends me a bill and then he'll sit on it for 30 or 60 days before he even calls me. That's an eight-month negative cash flow cycle that he's got to finance me. Whereas if he made it a thing, if you made your seven-step you know, uh, design process for designing eco-friendly buildings as an example for the architecture, or you had your three, uh, you know, your three, uh, step system for, uh, designing a great logo, whatever the, the thing is that you sell, you can then determine the, the payment terms. And if it's a thing, then you say, look, this is what we do. And we charge up front for it, or, or we charge 50% when you sign agreement to, st- to go forward. And the other half, you know, uh, at the 30 day mark, whatever the, the terms are. But if you own it, all of a sudden you get to, pr- you get to dictate both the price of it, but also the terms with which they buy it. Unlike when you're just rendering a service, all of a sudden it's, you're billing by the hour and you've got to actually do the work before you can count the number of hours you worked on it. And then you've got to send an invoice. It's a terrible way of doing business as opposed to, again, productizing your service. Well, you know, it's interesting for some businesses and even in some states here in the United States, especially contractors, they can't bill more by law. So they're kind of stuck into only taking a $1,000 deposit in, in the jobs, just to give you an idea. The jobs for these contractors can be three, four, five, a million dollars, but they still are limited because they can only go in progressive draws. Sure, so, again, that's but, but Greg, that would be another example of where they're stuck in the cycle of calling themselves the contractor. Right. So they're saying, I'm a contractor instead of I own the nine step visioning methodology for building your dream home. Let's mm-hmm. just use that as a silly example. Mm-hmm. We, you know, yes, we build buildings and yes, we're contractors, but what we own is our proprietary 
proprietary nine-step dream home uh, exploratory visioning program. And in step one, we meet with you and your spouse and we, you know, we have this whole visioning exercise we go through. In step two, we, you know, conceptualize the, 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 the vision and put words to it and start, I mean, I'm just making this up on yeah. the fly, but no. basically the point is that you own the nine-step dream home delivery system. Got it. And you happen to be a contractor. Mm-hmm. The nine-step dream home condition system, you can charge for in whatever way you want. Right. The, you know, the contractor services, you have to buy by the law in your local state. Right. Uh, so again, I'm trying to get you to think differently about what industry you're in. Interesting. But it is, it's a, it's definitely a very creative way to look at how this kind of industry, any industry could repackage themselves and come out with something that's productized. Now in, in tip six, Ted says... Hey, say no. Specialize. If it falls out of your area of expertise, don't take it on. And he says, the more you say no, no, the more referrals you get. What advice do you want to give our entrepreneurs are listening who are taking on business outside of their specialty? And in particular, they're going to tell you to keep cash flow coming in during tough times. What I'm sure you've heard this a zillion times is, hey, I did that because... I needed to keep my employees working, um, blah, 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 whatever excuse you're going to get. What response would you give them? So the more you narrow your focus, to use an, uh, an Al Reese Jack Trout quote, the more you will uh, narrow your focus, broaden your appeal. So the more niche you are, the more appealing you will become. The more you productize, the more you become referable. So if to use our last example, we have the nine-step dream home visioning system. All of a sudden, you've automatically differentiated yourself from every other contractor. Yeah, there are 50 other contractors in San Diego, but only one of them has the nine-step dream home visioning system. So all of a sudden, that's something that you go through the nine-step dream home visioning system. All of a sudden, the your your friends and colleagues and family members, uh, you have something to talk about with them. But yeah, they're, they're not just a contractor. They've got this whole nine-step thing that they do. So you become more referable when you've got a product. But the problem is, as soon as you start to move away from that, and yeah, we have this nine-step visioning thing, but we also do the seven-step this system, and we also install swimming pools, and we'll also measure the chemical for you. And we also, you know, uh, you know, distribute coffee machines. The more things that you do, the less referral bill you become. Mm-hmm. And so, so I think you, you want to think about doing one thing, productizing it, and then charging for it based on how you need the, the cash to flow. So uh, if the nine-step visioning process requires that the customer pay up front in order for you to, to, to have, be able to turn away generic projects, and that's the way you've got to bill for it. I think if, if, you are, if you've got something differentiated and you're controlling the pricing of it, then you, you shouldn't, in theory, have, um, have as many cash flow problems as if you're just offering a generic service. And, and in many cases, those are the businesses that have the worst cash flow issues. So let me shift gears with you a little bit. I mean, obviously, I can see that, you know, uh, I study a lot of these guys on the internet, Michael Hyatt, Pat Flynn, they're all out there. And you talk about the automatic customer creating a subscription business in any industry. And it's obviously focused on um, your, you know, the internet. Most businesses today mm, have just- a website. Yeah, pause, pause for a second, Greg. It certainly would not be focused on the internet. The intent behind the book was um, 
you know, we, we have all spent so much time now thinking about subscription models because we've all become customers of subscription companies because every software company out there, HubSpot, Salesforce.com, MailChimp, uh, whatever programs you use in your business, even Office 365 have become subscription based. Mm-hmm. And, and many of us, whether we manufacture widgets, we have a retail store, we, we, we mow people's lawns, we're a math tutor, whatever, think that, that the subscription business, you know, business model is only for software companies. And so what I, the reason I wrote the, the automatic customer was to say, no, no matter what industry you're in, uh, regardless of whether you manufacture something, whether you're a retail store or whether you are a distributor of goods or services, you can create some recurring revenue through the subscription business model. So that was, it wasn't intended to be an internet book. It really was intended to be a book for small companies that want to create recurring revenue. Well, you know, you look at the Dollar Shave Club, you look at a bunch of them, a lot of these subscription-based, so let me put it this way, they do run off the internet. But it does, and like you say, it doesn't matter. You're just talking about the fact of getting recurring revenue. Give us an example of one of the most unique things of businesses that you've consulted with that's basically turned what wasn't a subscription business into a subscription business and the success that they've had. Well, I wrote about H. Bloom in the book. It's one of my favorite examples. H. Bloom is a business that sells flowers. And mm-hmm. if you know anything about the business of selling flowers, it's a terrible, terrible industry. I mean, half of the inventory every month rots in the fridge. Every month, the average flower store owner in America will throw out half of his or her inventory because literally it's dead in the fridge. They miss buy. They, they buy too much. Um, they have to, uh, 30% of their revenue comes across Mother's Day and Valentine's Day. And so for the, the other 363 days a year, they're left trying to intercept some guy, trying to convince him to buy flowers for his wife on his way home from work, uh, which causes them to buy and rent very expensive real estate, typically in a you know bank tower in a major city, which costs them hundreds of dollars a square foot. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible business model. It's broken on every level. So these guys come along, H. Bloom uh, founders, uh, Sonu Panda and Brian Burkhardt, and they say, we're going we're gonna to take a different approach to selling flowers. We're going to look at who buys flowers on a recurring basis. And so they found out that spas, restaurants, hotels buy flowers regularly. Why? Because they want the image of a fresh cut bouquet of flowers on the reception table. And so they went to those customers and said, look, we're going to come and replenish your flowers every two weeks. We'll dispose of the old one, which was a pain point for you. We'll bring you new flowers. We'll also send you a commercial grade invoice. And so your general manager doesn't have to worry about whether the flowers are rotting and how they're going to have time to go down the street to buy new flowers. They can get back to selling hotel rooms and spa treatments. The average lifetime value of an H. Bloom subscriber is more than $4,500, meaning they make one sale. They convince one hotel to buy flowers. Over the lifetime of that hotel, they'll spend more than $4,500 with H. Bloom compared with the average transaction value of a flower store in America, which is $29. Wow. That's a huge story. I think these were the guys who were on Shark Tank, wasn't it? Didn't they go on Shark Tank? I don't know if Sonu, Panda, and Brian were, were on. Uh, I think they oh, were. They might have been. Yeah, it was a subscription model uh, flower business. It, it, it was amazing. Yeah, I did, I did remember it. Now, one of the things that you mentioned, 
And I think for a lot of people, they get anxious when they're trying to come up with a standardization model, as you're talking about. You said it takes two years to prove the standardization model. Um, sometimes your P&Ls maybe aren't looking as good. Um, you're not in as good a profitable position. Um, what would you tell people are considering it? Um, and have you seen people do this a lot more quickly and be able to speed it up, um, speed up the process? Well, two things. One, the reporting on a subscription business tends to be different than a traditional business. In a traditional business, our report card at the end of the year is a profit and loss statement, right? We know if we made money and that's that's how we sort of judge our year. In a subscription business, they use a different dashboard. And the number one statistic they refer to is something called LTV to CAC. LTV stands for lifetime value and CAC stands for customer acquisition costs. And what they're looking for is to get their LTV to CAC ratio north of three to one, meaning over the lifetime of the subscriber, they're gaining, capturing at least three times the revenue that it costs them to acquire the customer. So for example, in H. Bloom, you know, if they're getting $4,500 of lifetime value, they know they can spend up to about $1,000, maybe $1,200 uh, to win that customer. And if they're winning customers for less than $1,200, they've got a very successful subscription business. If it's costing them more, in other words, they're underwater in their three-to-one ratio, uh, they've got to retool and figure out what's going on. So that's the number that becomes much more important to subscription company operators than even the profit and loss statement. So you're basically referring to the customer acquisition costs, yes? Compared to or in relation to their lifetime value. Right, right. So if it costs me... $500 to acquire somebody and they stay on my books for $4,000, that's a good ROI. Correct. Yeah. Right. right. And if it costs you, for example, $500 to win a new customer, but over the lifetime of that value, over the lifetime of that customer only spends $1,000 with you, your LTV to CAC ratio would be more like two to one. Mm-hmm. And that's too low. Right. What you need to strive for, and most professional investors would insist on at least a three to one LTV to CAC ratio before they invest in your company. Okay. So in driving up the value of the business, give our listeners here some of the key points that's important to driving value. We've talked about some of them, standardizing, creating some kind of uh, program like Ted advised Alex to do, which was the five-step process around his uh, architectural system and you know creating logos in that case. Um, what are some of the other things that our listeners need to know about about Getting their businesses prepared, um, whether it's a two-person shop or a 50-person company, getting it prepared so that they can exit the business. What are just some of the, the big key points you would talk about? Yeah. So at the value builder, this is what we do. So uh, we assess companies and we, we assess them across eight different macro objectives or macro kind of drivers of company value. So um, they are your financial performance, um, your growth potential, how much you know growth potential your business has, how much recurring revenue you have. The uh, the fourth one is the degree to which you're differentiated. You know, acquirers like companies that have a really unique, defendable market position. They don't like commoditized businesses. They don't buy businesses that they could easily replicate. So they like really differentiated products. Uh, another fifth uh, item we look at is what we call hub and spoke, which refers to your management style, uh, meaning that the most valuable companies are not dependent on their owner. The sixth attribute we look at is something called the Switzerland structure, where you're not too overly reliant on a single customer 
employee, or supplier. We also look at the degree to which your customers are willing to recommend you. It's a good proxy for your future growth rate. And we also look at what we call the valuation teeter-totter, which is how we measure cash flow. And the more cash your business is generating, the more valuable it will be to an acquirer. So those are the, the eight factors we look at and uh, and we measure your business. So you can go, if you want to measure it, it's free. You go to valuebuildersystem.com and you can... Um, uh, you can go through the, uh, it's about a 32 so, point question. It's a free assessment that you provide. So for my listeners, if you want to reach out to John, you basically can reach him through value builder. Is it systems or system? System singular. Okay. Valuebuildersystem.com. And we'll put a link in the blog for that. Um, to make it even easier for your guys, Greg, just go to valuebuilder.com. Valuebuilder.com. Um, the other thing that you can reach, John, is uh, where are the other websites that they can reach you if they want to reach out and check out your books and, and so Yeah, on? so, so the, the big one would be valuebuilder, uh, valuebuilder.com. Uh, you can also go to builttosell.com or automaticcustomer.com. Right. So any of those three websites for my listeners, we'll put them all up on the website. He's also one of the things that John is, I would say, a, a good master at is really short little videos that really kind of tell the story and put it together. So when you do go to Value Builder System, um, check out some of those videos as you go around this uh, model that, uh, that John has created. He did a really good job of that. And if you're looking to build your business to a point where you can exit your company or spend less time and know that it runs on its own, I can highly recommend any of the things that John is recommending through Value Builders, through the Automatic Customer, uh, Build to Sell book. And uh, for my listeners, for those who just left, you can get him at John Warlow, and that's W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. You can just type that in, and you'll come up with plenty of references to him. John, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth. We thanks for taking the time to inform our listeners about a really important thing. I mean, most of my listeners who are out there, I'll bet you 80% of their net worth is tied up in their business. And so many people don't think about the day they're going to exit or there's going to be a succession. There's absolutely very little thought uh, given to that. So John would be your go-to to think about that. Definitely, his books are a wonderful read, an opportunity for you to learn more about how to build the value of the business before you sell it. Thanks, John. Greg, thank you. Thank you. 